This week, Philippine Airlines seeks to restructure $2.1 billion with $505 million dip in place. Intelsat seeks approval of settlement with first lien notes. Puerto Rico legislature targets statutes that enable debt transactions without legislative approval. An iconic New York furniture retailer, ABC Carpet and Home, files for Chapter 11. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring the latest developments in high-yield distressed debt and bankruptcy. I'm David Zupkis. Julian Boulan will be joining me for the Week in Review. For this week's deep dive, Reorg's Karen Lung and I will discuss a $4.6 billion settlement with the Sackler family in Purdue Chapter 11 cases and explore the releases of fraudulent transfer claims, as well as the third-party releases of the Sacklers. It's Friday, September 10th. Philippine Airlines, the flag carrier of the Philippines and the country's only full-service network airline, filed for Chapter 11 protection on Friday in the Southern District of New York with $4.1 billion in assets and $6.1 billion in liabilities. According to Nilo Thaddeus Rodriguez, the debtor's CFO, the case was filed to implement the final stages of a comprehensive restructuring that the debtor has negotiated with its constituencies for the past year. Rodriguez says that the debtor has entered into dozens of restructuring support agreements with creditors holding over 90% of the claims in the expected plan voting class, and that that number is likely to further increase. The parties to the RSAs include all of the debtor's significant aircraft-related lessors and lenders, as well as the debtor's primary maintenance, repair, and overhaul providers, original equipment manufacturers, and almost all of its funded unsecured debt holders. Majority-owned affiliate PAL Holdings is not a debtor. The debtors say that the extended nature of the COVID-19 pandemic has had a critical impact upon Philippine Airlines' business and operations, stressing that with global vaccination efforts challenged by new highly contagious variants of the COVID-19 virus, the future of the airline industry remains uncertain. As a result of the challenges brought on by the global pandemic, the company's revenue fell more than 60% from 2019 to 2020. The company lost about $2 billion in previously forecast revenue for 2020 and approximately $370 million in refunds, with nearly zero forward bookings. The debtors say they will also be seeking to commence an ancillary proceeding in the Philippines in recognition of the instant Chapter 11, which would enable the debtor to obtain the full benefit of the restructuring and ensure that no local Filipino creditors attempt to foreclose on assets or take other measures contrary to the automatic stay and to the detriment of the debtor's estate. The RSAs provide for, among other things, a fully consensual restructuring of the debtor's aircraft-related debt to eliminate approximately $2.1 billion in obligations and the reoptimization of the debtor's fleet size, composition, and ownership cost structure to meet the expected demands of the post-COVID-19 market. The debtors are seeking approval of $505 million in dip financing to be provided by the debtor's primary shareholder, Buonasorte Holdings, and its majority-owned affiliate, PAL Holdings. The debtors also anticipate entering into a $150 million exit facility to be provided by Buonasorte and PAL. The debtors obtained all requested first-day relief at a consensual hearing on Thursday, including interim approval of the DIP, which currently authorizes borrowings of $20 million of the $505 million facility. On Tuesday night, the Intelsat debtors filed a motion to approve the first lien notes claim settlement as part of the debtors' new plan support agreement with the Intelsat-Jackson crossover group. Under the settlement and the amended plan, the secured note holders would receive 77% of any prepayment premium and or make whole amounts payable under the applicable indentures, $23.6 million for the 8% first lien note holders and $91.5 million for the 9.5% first lien note holders. If the settlement is not approved, the plan provides for a toggle for the note holders to seek whatever payment would render their claims unimpaired as determined by the court. 
Debtors argue that the settlement is fair and reasonable under the circumstances and that if the settlement is not approved, the Jackson Crossover Group and Firstly Notes Group would seek allowance of the full amount of the premium and make all amounts that the debtors would maybe require to pay under the Firstly Notes and a reserve funded with that full amount, including interest at the contractual default rate and continued payment of the group's legal fees until a final decision, including through appeals. According to the debtors, the settlement would save them approximately $35 million in premiums under the Firstly Notes and $10 million in default interest under the term loan. The settlement motion is set for hearing on November 8th, the same time as the planned confirmation hearing. On Tuesday evening, Puerto Rico's House of Representatives approved House Bill 959 that would repeal Act 33 of 1942, a statute that the PROMESA Oversight Board has cited in court papers as enabling the issuance of bonds without new legislation. The bill would also target Act 33 and other bond-related statutes through amendments to Act 34 of 2014 which authorized the Commonwealth's most recent general obligation bond issue of $3.5 billion. Authored by House Speaker Rafael Hernandez, the bill aims to, quote, shore up the legislature's constitutional prerogatives, end quote, in the passage of general fund budgets and inserting the legislative branch into the process of approving fiscal plans contemplated under PROMESA. The measure would also, quote, provide for the expiration of any prior legislative authorizations for the issuance of debt, end quote. Although the Oversight Board has maintained a preference for legislative action to execute a Commonwealth plan of adjustment, it has argued in the Title III Court that there are other means to meet confirmation requirements that provide the substantive equivalent of the new GO bonds and contingent value instruments in the plan without legislation. During a Tuesday press conference, Governor Pedro Perlusi announced a $73 million investment in the former Roosevelt Roads U.S. Navy base's electric and water system infrastructure and said the Commonwealth will launch efforts to hire a master developer to market the sprawling property on Puerto Rico's east coast to potential investors. The governor also announced a $20 million private investment for the first phase of an electric power generation facility at Roosevelt Roads. Pierluci also said he will form a working group in the coming days to develop proposed tax reform that he has indicated would look to convert Puerto Rico into a low-cost tax destination. The governor also indicated that his administration favors overhauling certain existing tax statutes aimed at bringing high net worth investors to the island and increasing the exportation of professional services from Puerto Rico. ABC Carpet and Home, a New York City-based luxury home furnishing retailer which generates the majority of its revenue from sales at a flagship store located at 888 Broadway in New York City, filed for Chapter 11 protection on Wednesday night in the Southern District of New York, stating that absent near-term funding, they would likely need to cease operations. The debtor said that after exploring various strategic options, that a sale of essentially all their assets as a going concern is in the best interest of their creditors and estates. Debtor's capital structure includes $8.7 million in secured debt and over $80 million of unsecured debt. The debtors are seeking approval of $5.7 million in debt financing from senior prepetition lender and stocking horse bidder 888 Capital Partners, LLC. The stocking horse bid consists of a $15 million credit bid of prepetition and dip obligations, cash to satisfy cure costs and wind down, plus other amounts, and the assumption of liabilities. If the stocking horse is a successful bidder, then Paulette Cole, the debtor's controlling equity holder and former CEO, would, in exchange for her junior participation interest in the debtor's pre-petition senior secured loan, possess a 10% interest in ABC Hold Co. LLC, the parent of the stocking horse. 888 Capital, in which Cole has a minority interest, is controlled by Regal Investments, LLC. 
The debtors said that the COVID-19 pandemic's impact on their business was more pronounced than on many other retailers given the debtors' flagship stores in New York, because New York was the subject of not only more restrictive regulations than many other municipalities, but it also experienced a mass exodus of current and prospective customers leaving the city. The debtors said that other adverse market trends had impacted their performance in recent years, including the shifting of sales from traditional brick-and-mortar retailers to online retailers and changing consumer preferences. The debtors also cited the impact of construction delays at its flagship location as another drag on their operating performance. Top red stories this week included dip shenanigans in Lime Tree Bay, Eighth Circuit weighs in on equitable mootness, and another look at code impairment. Tribune litigation trustee files rehearing petition for Second Circuit's August 20th decision addressing remaining LBO appeals, Mallinckrodt's global opioid settlement, other agreements in principle to be memorialized in forthcoming amended plan, increased consideration to Guck Trust, Opioid Trust, Talon Energy working with Weil Gottschall, Evercore on balance sheet options. And now here's Jim from Houston with the week ahead. Well, good morning all. A bit of an increase in the legal activity this week, starting with Monday, the 13th of September, an omnibus hearing in Intelsat, a hearing at Alpha Holding, and a probation violation status conference. Sounds exciting in PG&E utility to the stars. Tuesday, September 14th, earnings rear their well-coiffed head in the form of Neiman Marcus and My Teresa, also a hearing in Avianca Holding. Wednesday, September 15th, another hearing in Alpha, and a first Court of Appeals hearing in Puerto Rico, plus there's earnings from PetSmart. Thursday, September 16th, sale hearing in Basic Energy, and Friday, September 17th, summary judgment hearing in Malincrote. And that is it from me. Back to New York. And next up, Karen Lung and I discussed the $4.6 billion settlement with the Sackler family in the Purdue Chapter 11 cases, the third-party releases of the Sacklers, and explore the reasons why the Purdue debtors themselves settled their fraudulent transfer claims against the Sacklers. So we're here today with Karen Lung from our America's Court credit team to talk about Purdue, which has been taking up a lot of headlines. And, you know, she Karen's been covering Purdue from the beginning of the case. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's an interesting coda to the, you know, it, it feels kind of like a, like the end of the discussion a little bit of, you know, the opioid crisis, even though it's ironic because I think that during the pandemic, it's actually accelerated to some degree, like overdoses, specifically the opioids, but the, but the case and the Sackler uh, part, play, part in all of it is is coming to an end. So, Karen, just just to sort of, can you tell you know, can you tell us a little bit about how the plan works generally? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, David. Well, it's an innovative and controversial plan. The Purdue Chapter Eleven cases, which were filed in 2019, was I mean, it was the first major bankruptcy driven by the opioid crisis and thousands of related lawsuits tied to the company's role in developing, making, marketing, branding, OxyContin, the narcotic painkiller. And what you can see in the plan is the parties in the case using the tools in the Chapter 11 toolbox to address not bonds and loans, but trillions of dollars in claims related to a mass social crisis, the opioid crisis. Uh, You know, David, I remember a few years ago, it was the 10-year anniversary of the Lehman Brothers bankruptcy filing. And at the time, we called it the biggest bankruptcy ever. 
But in some ways, Purdue may be the biggest bankruptcy ever in terms of uh, the number and magnitude of claims filed. There were over 600,000 claims that were filed, um, alleging over $40 trillion in claims. And one thing that Judge Drain said when he ruled on the plan at the beginning of September was, well, you could really think of every person in the range of Purdue's opioid products as a potential creditor. So maybe you, you could call this the biggest bankruptcy ever in terms of creditor body. Um, as the Purdue debtors describe it, the plan is aimed at providing opioid abatement for the benefit of creditors. In other words, efforts to address the negative effects related to opioids. So this could take the form of providing money to different kinds of governments who could then use the funds on treating opioid addiction, for example. Um, it could also mean the company itself developing and distributing uh, opioid addiction uh, treatment and overdose reversal medicines. So the plan would establish nine trusts to fund opioid abatement efforts and compensate personal injury claimants and approximately $5 billion in value would be provided to those opioid abatement-oriented trusts. The plan would also dissolve Purdue, so Purdue would cease to exist and transfer substantially all non-cash assets to a newly formed private company, NUCO, which would be indirectly owned by two of those um, trusts to be established under the plan. The plan also incorporates several settlements with private claimant groups and non-federal public government groups, as well as a settlement with the U.S. Department of Justice. And the, the aim, as the debtors have described it, is for Newcote to be a squeaky clean company, really, uh, subject to operating covenants uh, to make sure that its products, including opioid products, are provided in a safe manner and that risks of diversion are reduced. And there would be um, a corporate monitor there overseeing compliance. Also, the plan would establish a public document repository for Purdue-related documents that would make over 100 million pages of material available for public review. So I think this is meant to um, Here's some of the secrecy surrounding the company um, that has been the subject of lawsuits as well as discovery in the bankruptcy case. Uh, so th that's, those are some of the innovative elements of the plan. But the plan is also very controversial, especially because it incorporates a settlement with the Sackler family, the company's shareholders. Um, under the plan, the Sacklers would have no role in the governance or management of NUCO. And under the, settle, the shareholder settlement, the family has agreed to relinquish its equity interests in the debtors, so they'll no longer own Purdue. And they'll, they'll provide settlement cash contributions of $4.325 billion. This is in addition to $225 million already paid to the Department of Justice in exchange. And you can think of this as the price of all of those benefits that we talked about earlier. The Sacklers will be re released from opioid-related liabilities related to Purdue's conduct. And this means a release from claims held by the Purdue bankruptcy estate, as well as claims by third parties. We want to talk about the Sacklers, obviously, and what, you know, what this all means to them in terms of the third-party releases 
and the the actual debtor, specifically the debtor leases. But I I actually had a question for you about the 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 nature of the of the plan because I I the, I I don't know as much as I probably should about it. And because like you're saying, it 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 does it is actually kind of unprecedented. So they're they're turning Purdue into is it like a public like a nonprofit basically a public benefit corporation because like, it doesn't exist anymore right to just generate money it specifically it has like a it has like a directive i mean is that mm-hmm. is that like to to in order to serve the opioid crisis or develop i don't know whatever treatments or something like that it's, it doesn't exist to just make money for shareholders anymore like it did before right, right? exactly because the because the nuco will be indirectly owned by two of those creditor trusts. And the aim is for net value of the company going forward to go towards opioid abatement. Um, this is an aspect of Purdue settlement with the Department of Justice, where the debtors committed to turning the reorganized company into a public benefit company or an entity with a similar purpose. So yeah, that's that's the innovative aspect of the plan that um, that your the aim is no longer to generate profits for private shareholders, you know, in the ordinary way. But 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 the the Nuco owns, as far as I, 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 there wasn't a sale, right? There, um, Purdue didn't didn't sell any of its IP or assets during. No, the case. no, it's, no, it's not a sale transaction in that way. It's just that the Sacklers will be giving up their ownership, right. and the new company will be indirectly owned by by these creditor trusts. So Nuco owns all of Purdue's patents and IP, which is potentially ex- very, very valuable. I mean, you know, because I mean, the, the the medications and the, I guess the compounds are still used and still exist, right? So, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, they're going to be continuing to generate probably significant am- amounts of revenue going forward. I don't know. I don't know if, if there are projections of that, but I would imagine that there's a lot of value there. Yeah. I mean, it, it goes to the question of, I think how much the the settlement with the Sackler family is really worth, right? So we, I think the headline number, and you know, we sometimes refer to it, to it this way is that th- this is a $4.6 billion settlement. And we're taking that number from the, uh, from the cash contributions that the family is giving up. But of course there's, there's more value there because the family is uh, really turning the company over to stakeholders. It, and I, it's funny you you said you know that in some ways this is a bigger bankruptcy than Lehman, except that I mean in, just in terms of the headline number though you know mm-hmm, five mm-hmm, billion dollars exactly. doesn't seem like a lot compared to Lehman, right? Okay. Yeah, this is definitely not a bigger case in terms of assets. I guess it's a bigger case in terms of liabilities and the right. trillions of dollars. I mean, forty trillion dollars in claims. I read that global GDP yet last year was something in the neighborhood of eighty trillion dollars. That's, yeah. that's yeah, right. You can't, that, I mean, that, that just seems like hard, hard to get your head around with the scale of it. I, I think, I think it makes sense then to t- talk a little bit about how the third party releases work. Um, and then we can, we can kind of compare them to how the, the specific debtor releases work in the, in the plan. Sure. So as, so as we touched on earlier, the, sh- the shareholder settlement incorporated into the plan would release both third party claims and estate claims. Um, and you can think of these two types of claims as two different paths to creditor recovery. When we're talking about third-party claims, 
what we're, we're referring to here is plaintiffs pursuing direct litigation against the Sacklers as they did before the bankruptcy. Um, so, and the third party release has really been the target of most of the criticism of the plan and has been the focus of the plan objections filed by uh, a group of non-consenting states, which refers to nine states and the District of Columbia, uh, as well as opposition from the US trustee and from the United States. And the criticism here is that the third party release of the Sacklers would be imposed by the plan on people who want to sue the Sacklers whether they've consented or not. And that this is taking place in a bankruptcy of the company, not in the Sacklers themselves. So before the Purdue bankruptcy, plaintiffs, which could include uh, individuals, it could include hospitals, it could include uh, governments such as municipalities and states, they could sue the Sacklers. Um, under the Purdue plan, they would no longer be able to do so because of the third party release that's being imposed on them. That's why we refer to it as a non-consensual release. It's imposed without consent. Uh, the third party shareholder release in the plan now relates to opioid related claims arising out of the conduct of uh, Purdue. So what we're talking about is um, people suing the Sacklers for opioid-related claims. Um, of course, this, this is really the, the focus. This was really the meat of the pre-petition lawsuits against Purdue and the Sacklers. Um, and so the, the argument here, of course, is that it's an unjust to force people who want to sue the Sacklers for their role in the opioid crisis to lay down their swords under Purdue's plan. Um, legally, it's also a controversial maneuver, right? Because Purdue filed for bankruptcy, not the Sacklers, but, um, but Purdue's plan would uh, effectively be giving other people's property away by imposing a release on those claims. You know, it's not so controversial legally that Purdue could release its own claims against the Sacklers. It's more controversial that um, that uh, and a release could be imposed on third parties, and which of course includes thousands, maybe tens of thousands, at least potentially, of plaintiffs across the United States. So that's that's one path to creditor recovery: uh, plaintiffs suing the Sacklers directly. The other path, um, as you mentioned, David, is the estate claims, especially fraudulent transfer claims of Purdue against the Sacklers. And you can think of fraudulent transfer or fraudulent conveyance claims as a way for the bankrupt company to claw back value that was previously transferred away back into the bankruptcy estate. In this case, the idea is Purdue could recover some of the assets that it transferred to the Sacklers before bankruptcy, get that value back and distribute these assets for the benefit of creditors. Uh, and these claims are owned by the estate which is something that came into existence only when Purdue filed for bankruptcy. One of the reasons that this is such a huge issue in the case is because 
about the massive amount of wealth we're talking about here. So since 2008, the Sacklers and their affiliates have received $10.4 billion in cash and $1.4 billion in non-cash transfers from Purdue. Um, in April, the U.S. House Committee on Oversight Reform uh, estimated the Sackler family's wealth at $11 billion, in large part derived through sales of OxyContin. So you're talking about you're you're talking about a lot of wealth here, and in an amount that that is much larger than the 4.3 billion being provided in settlement payments. Um, okay, well, so let's talk about wh- why did the estate then have to decide, right? Or what 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 drove its decision, the the estate's decisions to settle with the Sacklers? Because if they had, you know, tr- like you know trillions of dollars or whatever, billions of dollars in potential recoveries against them through fraudulent transfer claims that would, that would you know, loop through and ultimately go to the creditor body. Um, wh- why did they choose to settle for, you know, the, the headline amount mm-hmm. and not pursue them, you know, in, you know, in state court or whatever other, whatever other forums were available to them? Right. I think to explain that, maybe we should uh, go through some of the components of the fraudulent transfer claims first, uh, and then, and then talk about what the debtor said would be some of the obstacles to, to winning on those fraudulent transfer claims and collecting. And like, as you touched on David, collection is, was a huge issue in in the discussion of the estate claims. Um, So, the bankruptcy code tells us about the components of a fraudulent transfer claim in section 548. And that provision describes two types of fraudulent transfer claims. The first is intentional fraudulent transfer. The second is constructive fraudulent transfer. Uh, Intentional fraudulent transfer is, well, what it sounds like. Uh, a transfer made with actual intent to hinder, delay, or defraud creditors. For example, did you hide your assets somewhere hard to reach because you knew that your creditors would try to get at them and you were trying to prevent that? Um, Intentional fraudulent transfer is the type of fraudulent transfer that's closer to the everyday sense of the word when we say fraud in ordinary conversation. So that's the first type of fraudulent transfer um, that Purdue could potentially pursue against the Sacklers. Second type is constructive fraudulent transfer, which has two requirements, broadly speaking. It's a transfer where the debtor received less than a reasonably equivalent value in exchange for the transfer, and it took place while the debtor was insolvent. So this type of transfer isn't really about bad intent. It's about whether a transaction was economically unfair that took place while the debtor was insolvent. And um, so you asked about what the problems were, like what the difficulties were. That what, what, dro- what drove them to ultimately have to have to settle rather than, you know, if they could go and collect on them, right? If they were worth a lot more than whatever it was, $5 billion. Yeah, we got the most detailed explanation of this, you know, of the debtors thinking in the papers that they filed in the run-up to confirmation. And I think you can look at what they said through the lens of two main ideas. So the first question was, can we win? 
meaning if the estate didn't settle with the Sacklers and sued them under theories of fraudulent transfer, could Purdue win in that lawsuit? Uh, could Purdue actually satisfy all the requirements for intentional fraudulent transfer or constructive fraudulent transfer that we just talked about and win a fraudulent transfer against the Sacklers? Uh, and the second idea, the second question is, can we collect? So even if Purdue won a fraudulent transfer lawsuit, would they be able to take the judgment and make uh, the Sacklers and their related entities actually pay it? And both ideas were really important in the debtor's analysis. Um, so on the first question, could the debtors win? Uh, Purdue outlined some obstacles or some uncertainties in a fraudulent transfer action against the Sacklers. So the statute of limitations was a big one. You know, we talked about how the Sacklers took over $11 billion of value out of Purdue, right? But a lot of those transfers took place um, before the two-year look-back period that is provided for in Section 548 of the Bankruptcy Code. So, you know, that, that provision gives us a two-year look-back period. In this case, Purdue filed for bankruptcy in 2019. That means that under Section 548, they can recover fraudulent transfer transfers that occurred from 2017 to 2019. Uh, the debtors also talk about um, pursuing fraudulent transfer claims under applicable non-bankruptcy law, which might get them to a longer statute of limitations. Uh, but, you're, but because the transfers mostly took place in earlier years, that would really limit the amount of recovery that the estate could get. So for example, the Purdue explains that if a six-year statute of limitations look-back period applies, then they would be limited to recovering $4.1 billion out of that $11 billion. If a four-year look-back period applied, they would be limited to recovering $2 billion. So that's a huge chunk of the, of the asset transfers that you can't reach. When it comes to intentional fraudulent transfer, um, the debtor said that it's also uncertain whether they could convince a fact finder that there was fraudulent intent here, that they could rely on some documents in the record showing that, uh, you know, indicating that individual Sacklers uh, were worried about substantial legal risks, but, uh, you know, getting to actual evidence of intent, that's uncertain. Then there's also the fact that um, about $4.7 billion of those transfers to the Sacklers were tax distributions. And there are uncertainties involved with recovering those tax distributions. Um, the, the reason that this happened is because Purdue Pharma LP is a pass-through entity for US federal income tax purposes. So uh, basically the entity's taxable income was passed through to and reportable by the shareholders. Um, on this point, actually, there was a uh, Sackler family witness who was a tax expert who testified that if, um, if Purdue Pharma LP had been uh, organized as a C corporation during this time period, then the corporation would have paid 
a similar amount in taxes anyway. So, um, so I think here that the witness was getting at the reasonably equivalent value requirement of constructive fraudulent transfer. The the idea was that you know if the if these distributions had not been made to the Sacklers for the Sacklers to make tax distributions, then Purdue itself would have needed to pay to make these tax payments. Then there's the issue of collectability. And here the, the debtor said that, you know, maybe most importantly in this analysis, even if we won in a fraudulent transfer lawsuit, there's a lot of uncertainty about whether or not we'd actually be able to collect. So Judge Drain actually commented on some of the difficulties in collection. You, and I think it's, it's worth, it's worth uh, looking back on some of that, what he said. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, a lot of his comments during the confirmation ruling really reflected the debtors' concerned when it came concerns when it came to the elements of the fraudulent transfer claims, like the concerns about proving up insolvency, um, the statutes of limitations, for example. Uh, and he also talked about collectability. He said that if the merits of the estate claims were assessed were assessed in a vacuum. He believed that the ultimate judgment that would be achieved on the estate claims and the third party claims would be higher than the amount that the Sacklers are contributing, higher than that $4.3 billion amount, uh, which is a really important point. But he also added, I don't believe that they would be higher after taking into account the catastrophic effects on recoveries that would result from pursuing those claims and unraveling the plan's intricate settlements. So here he's talking about the, the fact that there are interlocking settlements incorporated into the plan, especially the settlement with the US Department of Justice. And the judge said, this is a bitter result, B-I-T-T-E-R. It is incredibly frustrating that people can send their money offshore to spendthrift trusts like the, the Jersey trust that we talked about that may not recognize US law. It is incredibly frustrating that the vast size of claims against Purdue creates the need for these intricate settlements. He said, but those things are all facts and anyone that's a fiduciary for the creditor body would have to recognize and that I recognize. So he said that he wished that the settlement provided more value to creditors, but he felt that he didn't have the power to impose a higher number. The, I mean, understanding the Purdue case, the Purdue plan gets us into the bread of butter, bread and butter of these different elements of settlements and fraudulent transfer claims, um, as well as the third party claims that are being released under the plan. I think the question for people looking at the cases, was the result inevitable or could there could it have been different? Um, so you might think that because of all of the interlocking settlements, uh, that plan confirmation was a natural result at this point in the case, but did the case have to go this way? And did the judge have discretion to uh, narrow the releases in some way? Okay. And then, and then also, I mean, I, I don't think we got into it, but there's also the right there's the insolvency prong usually of a fraudulent transfer oh, yes. claim, right? And 
Uh, I mean, here, right, they would have to have established that at the time the transfers were made, they knew or reasonably believed that, right, Purdue might be insolvent, which is... Uh, right, right. So there's that insolvency requirement in the constructive fraudulent transfer claim. The estate would have to show that Purdue Pharma LP was insolvent at the time that they made these transfers to the Sacklers. And Purdue, during this time period, was never insolvent on a balance sheet basis. Right. So there are other arguments that the debtors could make um, about whether there was accrued tort and criminal liabilities during this period that should be accounted for in in a solvency analysis. Um, so that's it's a legal argument. It's much less clear cut than than just saying, you know, your liabilities exceed your assets on uh, balance sheet on a balance sheet basis. Um, and so David, I think you're thinking of a settlement in, uh, 2007. Oh yeah. 2007. Uh, yeah. 2007. That was pretty important. Actually, uh, judge drain tested on this as well when he ruled on confirmation of the plan talking about, uh, you know, what can we what can we glean from the history of settlements related to Purdue, and can can that indicate to us, you know, what what creditors would recover if there wasn't a release of the Sacklers? So Purdue, um, under a 2007 plea agreement with the U.S. Department of Justice, paid nearly 600 million dollars in fines and other payments. And also in 2007, um, Purdue entities entered into consent judgments with the attorney generals of 26 states and the District of Columbia to resolve allegations that Purdue engaged in unfair and deceptive marketing of OxyContin. So these, the so with the states, the, the this resolution was related to. Um, consumer protection statutes that were state specific. And uh, under this resolution, Purdue paid $19.5 million. So, you know, that's that's not a lot of money. There were um, there were other settlements along the way, you know, in the lead up to the bankruptcy as well. So um, in 2015, Purdue resolved a suit uh, brought by the Kentucky Attorney General for $24 million and uh, also entered into a $270 million settlement with the state of Oklahoma. So, okay, so now we're, now we're at the end, right? Judge confirmed the plan. I know the, the, there are a couple of states, states, and I, and I think the UST appealed, have appealed the confirmation order at this point, right? Specifically the, the third party release point. Um, I, I don't, is, I, I'm, I'm not sure if there are more appeals coming, but you know, unless someone gets right, a stay pending appeal, right, this thing is going to go effective. Um, I guess at some point, like what 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 it, what are the what are the what are the things that have to be hit for it to go to effective? Like, do they does it have to be the assets have to be transferred and dissolved? I mean, I'm sure there's usually, there's usually the box of things right that have to happen before effectiveness. And if if you can think of anything interesting, let me know. But in terms of timing. Like when when do, do they anticipate when the plan will go effective? 
Well, it, it would be several months at least. And um, like, as you noted, David, the day of the confirmation ruling, the state of Washington and the District of Columbia filed notices of appeal. The U.S. trustee also signaled that it'll appeal the confirmation ruling and seek a stay pending appeal. Oh, they will. And, yeah. And of course, the, the risk here, the concern here is that you can appeal a confirmation ruling but if the plan gets um, gets consummated, then the the appeal may be dismissed for being equitably moot. Right. Right. That's that's the concern here. So it's so it's really like who, what judge is going to grant the state pending appeal or not grant it? Right. That's going to be an interesting. Um, that's be an interesting decision. I don't know. It's not, but it hasn't happened yet. Right. No one's asked for a state pending appeal just yet. Not yet. Not yet. But it's coming. It's definitely coming. Okay. Well, so we'll uh, maybe we'll have you back on to talk about that, um, depending on how an interesting argument it is. Um, okay, well, listen, Karen, thank you so much for joining us. Um, it, you know, the, it's, even though it's such an, even though it's such an unusual case, you know, Purdue, Purdue kind of stands on its own and it will probably be taught, right, in, in law schools forever. I mean, it's, a, it's really a great opportunity to kind of go through the meat and potatoes of how, you know, large bankruptcies work. You have your third-party releases. This is what they are. You have your debtor releases. Is what they are. This is fraudulent transfers and conveyances. This is how they work, right? In the end, like you have to have like a, a good understanding of all these basic concepts to, to even to get it even in in this kind of unusual case. Um, and I'm and I'm sure that all of our listeners appreciate that. Um, so thanks again, Karen. You know, we'll we'll look to have you back. Thank you. Thanks so much, David. Thank you again for listening to this Rear Weekly Review. Find all our podcasts on the rearc.com webinars and podcast page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great weekend and see you next Friday.